Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Squarespace. The future is coming. Make it brighter with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website, showcase your work blog or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code CANADALAND. You'll get 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode is also brought to you by Sonos, who are offering listeners of this podcast 10% off of an order, and that can be up to $2,500 of Sonos gear or less. This offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code CANADA10, that is CANADA10, at Sonos.com to get that offer. Sandy Garasino columnist for Vancouver's National Observer, joining me from her vacation in Los Angeles. Hello. Hello. Sandy, today we are going to talk about the gay vegan Canadian who made Steve Bannon's psychological warfare tool. We are going to talk about whether or not reporting a news story meets the legal definition of harassment. And if so, can we still do it? And uh, finally, we are going to talk about the panic over the reportedly dubious loyalties of Jagmeet Singh and other Canadian Sikh politicians. Just how afraid of them should we be? 
Uh, I am very glad to have you back, Sandy. So glad to be here. Really thrilled. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Josh Clavier, Kevin Cardoza, Steve Ehrenberg, Dave Mooney, Caroline Lube Darcy, David Goforth, Tyler Rimstead, and Stephen Butler. Because Caroline gives me insight into Canadian media that I haven't found anywhere else. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. If you're ready to start your new business, you can make it stand out with Squarespace. They have beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They make it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. You can showcase your work, blog, you can publish content, you can sell products, services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from the look and feel to settings and products. It is all optimized for mobile right out of the box. You can use their amazing analytics to help you grow in real time. There is nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. If you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code CANADALAND. You'll get 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com, offer code CANADALAND. I played a pivotal role in setting up a company that I think has done a lot of harm to the democratic process. It was a gross, grossly unethical experiment because you are playing with an entire country, the psychology of an entire country without their consent or awareness. And not only are you like playing with the psychology of, of an entire nation, you're playing with the psychology of an entire nation in the context of the dem democratic process. It was almost everything that would be on a, on a Facebook profile. So that was things like status updates, likes, in some cases, private messages. Um, so Cambridge Analytica has people's private messages they sent on Facebook? I can't say whether they did or not. What I'm, saying, what I'm saying is what the app could do. It's incorrect to call Cambridge Analytica a, a purely sort of data science company or an algorithm you know, company. You know, it is a full service propaganda machine. If you can control all of the streams of information around your opponents, you can influence how they perceive that battle space, and you can then influence how they're going to behave and react. If you want to fundamentally change society, you first have to break it. And it's only when you break it is when you can remold the pieces into your vision of a new, of a new society. This was the weapon that Steve Bannon wanted to build to fight his culture war. Uh, what a nightmare. I'll say. But all of this had been coming. I mean, in some ways, we'd had all the warning signs all the way along. And yet here we are. And where we are is a shocking is shocking. I mean, it's shocking and unshocking. Like, I, I was trying to parse this this morning. I mean, what do we know now? We know that the Brexit campaign and the Trump campaign and other campaigns throughout the world have been using our, our Facebook profiles to build psychological profiles of us, to manipulate us, to find our deepest fears and uh, game us in order to affect political processes and, and subvert our democracies and elect people who were paid to, to manipulate us in this way. I knew that two weeks ago. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing shocking about that. I totally knew that two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and four weeks ago. And yet I still feel shocked by, I don't know, the proof? Well, what we didn't know was the data breach. We didn't know how, uh, we didn't know the specifics of just how bad 
Facebook's security over the data that it possesses is, so that somebody could get into the Facebook system, misrepresent what their purpose was and what they were doing, and gather vastly more information on vastly higher numbers of people than anyone imagined, and that Facebook was willfully blind, at best willfully blind. I've had a lot of experience with Facebook on the uh, privacy and security side, and there comes a point where the willful blindness excuse is just a little bit too much to stomach. So there are details about the the revelations here that we didn't know, mm-hmm. and that and that should be concerning. And the one thing that I point to in all of this is, and nobody's yet talking about artificial intelligence. I mean, we're just looking at the tail of a comet. We don't know where this thing is going. And it's a real wake-up call for everyone. We don't know where it's going, and we don't know the full extent of what was done. I mean, I'm still trying. I've been reading tons of this incredible journalism, and there's just so many different organizations have put so much resource into this. And yes, it seems like you would be foolish now to assume that Facebook has any control over this information or that Cambridge Analytica were the only ones. And in fact, to their willful blindness, we're getting increased other whistleblowers, including a former Facebook higher up who says he was warning Facebook about this. They were aware that this database had gone to Cambridge Analytica because there's a paper trail of them asking, where is that? Has it been deleted? So the extent of their blindness is hopefully going to be interrogated further. But the real bottom line here is like, okay, so we knew Facebook was doing this kind of stuff and people were, you know, doing political ads through Facebook to do exactly this kind of stuff. Now we know that it's being done off of Facebook. But what I can't figure out, Sandy, is was this simply a matter of building a psychological profiles so that we had very personalized propaganda? Or, and you bring this up through your question about artificial intelligence, am I on some black mirror dystopian sci-fi trip or am I, am I entertaining a legitimate worry when I imagine a algorithmic-based organic strain of propaganda that is not just tailoring propaganda to me, but is gaming me, is watching how I respond to things, changing the message, learning me until it finds something that I will get angry about, passionate about, and engage with and and, and perpetuate a political message, share it, comment it. Is, is it like a living virus that is just going to keep chipping away at me until I do its bidding. Uh, is that like a crazy flight of fancy? Because I, I I can't get clarity on this as to, like, why wouldn't they be trying to do something like that? Well, I don't think that they are yet doing that, but I have no doubt at all that the tech industry and that key developers in within the tech industry would do this if they could, which is why we have to start looking at legislation. You know, I've been talking about regulating this sector for since 2012, usually always on deaf ears and usually to a chorus from the tech geek world of you are stupid, you don't know what you're talking about, um, you're alarmist and you don't understand technology and this is just the way it is and this is new freedom. You know, we've been sucked into a kind of utopia idea that total freedom in the tech industry is a good thing. And there's another thing that is very, very troubling here is the degree to which not just the public, but government as well, has bought the line of the tech industry that they are you know, that they are white hats, that these are good people, they're doing good things, and that we can assign to them responsibility for creating the new moral universe. And what this has exposed is that 
absolutely we can't. This is a profit-driven industry. The business model is selling our data. They will get more and more and more data as much as they can. They will save as much as they can. This is why I'm loving what the EU is bringing in, because it is really scaring the bejesus out of the tech industry. And this should become the standard across the civilized world for anybody who wants to be operating a platform on the internet, which is their general data protection regulation. Yeah, I mean, we've covered here before just how, as this trend of cracking down on Facebook, which I think, I hope this revelation is going to kick into overdrive, it looks like it might be doing so, just how absent from that process Canada has been and how thoroughly the Trudeau government has partnered with Facebook and given Facebook a pass and shrouded themselves in kind of tech utopian uh, photo op glory uh, as opposed to actually regulating them. You know, I won't pretend like it's it's an interesting balance to find because, again, so much of this is stuff we knew, like the Channel 4 documentary where they went undercover and got Cambridge Analytica CEO Alexander Nix on camera mm-hmm. saying, saying that they will go beyond digging for dirt on political opponents. They will create dirt. They will entrap politicians with bribe offers or trying to send women and videotape it. Uh, and failing that, he says, we'll just make stuff up if we need to. I knew that kind of stuff happened in the political universe. I knew that that existed. But there's a difference between knowing that it exists and seeing proof and combining those kinds of old school oppo techniques with this terrifying Facebook database approach. It makes fools of all of us. It makes a mockery of our democracy. It is an absolute perversion of, of the system. And it's, you know, as individuals, we're being laughed at and played. And basically it is now has, has to be recognized as fact that our freedom is sort of for sale. I mean, like if we can't get angry about this, like what do you get upset about? You know, in fact, our freedom or the freedom of many, many Americans was sold. You know, one of the, the really shocking things, perhaps I'm naive, but I do think that corporations or that entities assisting campaigns that set up call girls and create the, the oppo material that they can then uh, smear their opponents with, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think that that's pretty offside and that I think think that that this is not a widespread practice. I mean, the whole, but this is the kind of people that Donald Trump has cloaked himself with. He is surrounded by people with this kind of moral compass. So I'm not surprised at all that the Trump campaign would be using figures of, of this kind of ethical backbone. And I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that that's not a widespread practice, possibly naively. But I, but I do think that. I mean, almost as egregious as the idea that like maybe they, this process is why Trump is president or why Brexit was voted for. As bad as that is just this kind of like on the personal level, like this was a campaign to divide society against itself. This was a campaign to get people to hate each other. I mean, that 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 is so gross, you know. Uh, what, do you, what, what do you make of Chris Wiley, uh, the whistleblower, who is both – it seems a pioneer of these malicious tactics and the person who we can credit for informing us that this had happened. I'm, I'm curious what you think of, of, of his media tour and the fact that there's this CP story that he was shopping similar techniques when he was like, I don't know, barely out of his teens to Ignatieff's campaign in 2009 and they told him to take a hike. 
Well, I just I just before talking about that, I do I want to go back briefly to what you were mentioning before, which is that how we're this was designed to make us all hate each other and and be divisive. And in fact, there's another element to this that I think also touches on one of our later topics today, which is that social media is literally designed to heighten conflict and make people yell at each other. That that is that anger and hatred and division and conflict are addictive for humans. We can't leave it alone. And these platforms are, like Twitter, are literally being designed to to make us do that because it keeps its part of the attention economy. There's a wonderful podcast on Sam Harris with a guy by the name of Tristan Harris, who is a design ethicist at Google and knows this whole world. And he says the back end of these platforms is unbelievable and conflict is baked right into it. So that's just my one comment there. On Wiley, you know how many Wileys are there? There's probably, God only knows, thousands thousands of them. I was very interested Mm -hmm. to read an interview that The Guardian had with Alexander Kogan, who is the researcher at Cambridge, uh, who was, was... you know, one of the designers of, of all of this technology. And in some ways, he poo-poos how accurate a lot of these these algorithms are or how accurate this targeting is. You know, it's interesting. I went on Cambridge University's site to test it, and they looked at, they, did, they ran a, a check of my Facebook and Twitter activity, and they figured that I was a 30-year-old male, which was um, not accurate. So I so I so I do <laughs> right. wonder if I do wonder about the accuracy of all of this. But one of the things that was really interesting that Kogan had to say was um, he said, and this is this is in the Guardian today, and he's saying we thought everything was fine. We th- we think that tens of thousands of apps are doing the exact same thing that we're doing. This is a pretty normal use case of Facebook data, he says, and that that we didn't think we were doing doing anything wrong. And I think that that, you know, we can look at Wiley and we can wonder about Wiley, but there are there are probably tens of thousands of Wileys, and it would be wonderful if more of them had the kind of uh, ethical lodestar north star that he finally had to to come forward. And, I, you know, hats off to the journalists who made this happen. There's something kind of ironic about Facebook being taken down by just good old-fashioned investigative journalists like the people at Guardian and Carol Kadwala being first among equals on that. All of this is just, is, is just stunning, and it's just a gigantic wake-up call. You know, I've been in discussions with friends who are inside the tech industry, and in particular, someone who, uh, at a very, very high level in the legal uh, legal department of a major, major corporation, and I was asking this person, "What does the public need to know?" And this person said three things: legislation is needed, governments need to wake up to what these corporations are doing, that's number two, and what the business model is, understand it and not be naive about it and trusting the technology industry to be, you know, don't be evil kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Don't trust them not to be evil. Number three, Amazon is the scariest. How do you like that? 
Oh, dear God. All right. We'll leave it there because I, I will hold my tongue on making a case for the amazing effects that Twitter and Facebook even has had on independent media and giving a voice to people who didn't have one before because my timing is off for that argument. <laughs> I think our takeaway needs to be we need to do something about Facebook because it's a power like we've never seen before. And we have an election coming up in this country, and CSIS has warned us that we're next. Okay, Sandy, I would like to talk with you a little bit about this case. It's still developing, so I don't know how deeply we can get into it, but I think it definitely bears some scrutiny. And this is the case of the Radio-Canada journalist Antoine Trepanier, who was merely investigating a story about the executive director of a charity who has uh, an interesting past where she conceded at some point that she uh, practiced law without a valid license, and she's running this Big Brothers Big Sisters charity. Uh, in any event, as Trepanier pursued comment from Yvonne Dubay, and I, I kind of know how that goes, you say, I want to give you a, a, one more chance to comment on this. I will be publishing the story with or without your comment. I have questions for you about your past. There are accusations that have come to light. And uh, she called the cops. She called the cops and said, I'm being harassed. And they arrested him. And it is an interesting case because the president of the Canadian Police Association chimed in, Tom Stamatakis, to say, it's almost as though the expectation is media should somehow be treated differently or have freedom to interfere with people on the basis that they are engaged in journalism. And, and I, I had, again, I can see this... I, but hold on, hold on. On the one hand, I'm like, that is a disgusting comment for, for the police to assail freedom of the press in that way. And we have always, we have always made room in, in especially public institutions and charities uh, for, for journalists to do their job. We've always afforded them the ability to ask questions and made ourselves accountable and made public people accountable in a way that you wouldn't to, to just anyone. And how dare you, sir? I see that side of it. On the other hand, he's totally right. He's to there's nothing in law, like if anyone else were to call someone and say, I know what you did, you have to comment or I'm going to expose you. I'm calling you again. I'm giving you one last chance. And they felt threatened or harassed. It would totally qualify potentially as threats or harassment. And there is nothing in law separating journalists from anybody in the public. And nor do I think oh, there's something. Oh, 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 I'm going to break it. Excuse me. Excuse me. Have you heard? Oh, shit. I'm talking to a lawyer. the Charter okay. yes. of Rights and Freedoms. Yes, we have freedom. freedom it's of not the particular to journalists. Everybody. Freedom of the press is specifically protected under the Charter of Rights. Yes. The press but what is, is the, press? the only industry and the only segment of society that is apart from groups that need special protection because of their status. The press is the only industry that is specifically protected because of its role in the protection of democracy. So I, I'm sorry I, I mean, when I see this kind of thing coming from police. You know, in British Columbia, nobody's allowed to lay charges until the Crown Council, actual lawyers who have heard of and read the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and understand it and understand the law, have a look at it, and then charges get filed. You know, this just this case to me just it just there should be some sort of legal mind supervising the laying of charges. There is an absurdity here. It is wrong. Oh. Counselor, I, 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 it is absolutely wrong, and I will not defend the police actions. And God help me if I open up some kind of uh, J school or philosophical debate about this that, that I can't get out of and I'm <laughs> ill-equipped to defend myself on. But 
Come on. Okay, we can agree that Radio Canada Reporter, that's the press, right? Yes. If a citizen with a blog in that community, and more and more local journalism in this country is being done by citizens with blogs or Twitter accounts, were to ask the same questions, are they press? I mean, you keep referring to the industry, and I think the law is very fuzzy on on, on what the press is and, and whether you need to be industrialized or professionalized by some unknown standard in order to have those types of protections afforded to you. This has happened on an ad hoc basis where it was really clear who was a reporter. It's not so clear anymore, and I'm... I I am worried about an increased stability for people to sick the cops on people who are doing journalism in anything but the most sanctioned, professionalized kind of capacity. Well, I mean, uh, is that not a valid part of this? At the same time, I uh, have seen and know of cases where bloggers have, you know, really, really pursued people far, far beyond what is rational because. Reporters and journalists have professional standards. They abide by a code of ethics. There is some degree of professional, there is a degree of professionalism there. And we have seen the risks of just, you know, handing anybody that kind of stature and <coughs> rebel media. <clears throat> but um, but so many people would cough and say Canada Land with the same breath, you know. So many people would cough and say like, "Oh my God, I've done it! I've got, how do we get out of this?" Do you? I, do you, I, 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 I almost do I you, almost want to ask you if you if you think we should be licensed, but I'm not gonna because I'm afraid of what you're gonna but, say. But okay, I'm, uh, let's just take it back to again this legal case because Ms. Dubay seems to be a little bit adept at gaming the legal system. She seems to have run into trouble for passing herself off as a lawyer. Uh, she has been permanently enjoined from engaging in the unauthorized practice of law. You know, this is somebody who is, who kind of knows their way around the system a little bit here. And even given the circumstances of this case, which is a call and an email asking for an interview, this is not criminal harassment. Period. No, no, no argument. Let's let's uh, let's end at at yes. I agree. Yeah. Sandy, I'm going to thank our second sponsor, and that is FreshBooks. If you are a freelancer, if you are a small business owner, it's that time of year. It is tax season. There's a good chance that you are dealing with some headaches right now, dealing with a box of receipts, dealing with all of your papers and emails and invoices and everything is scattered, and you've got to dig it all up, enter it in, make sense of it. It is a time suck. Why not do yourself a favor and stop digging? Before you completely disappear under all of that paperwork, check out FreshBooks cloud accounting software. Not only is it going to save you a ton of time and stress now and throughout the year, it, it might actually change the way you feel about dealing with your taxes. Need to send your accountant a quick summary on the amount of tax that you've collected last year? Do you need to pull together a profit and loss summary? FreshBooks can generate those reports with the click of a button instead of the hours that it would take you, puny human. You can even set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts, which means that the next time you use your debit card for a work-related expense, boom, it is recorded instantly in FreshBooks. Get all of that, and also FreshBooks is stupid easy to use. It is made especially for people like me who don't like dealing with numbers or their taxes. Right now, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial, no credit card required for people who listen to this podcast. If you want that, Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and enter CanadaLand in the how did you hear about us section. Sandy, um, I want to duly note a few things with you. Um, can we duly note? Yeah. Uh, I have a couple, so I'll go first. And I want to, actually, it's related to what we were just talking about. I want to point out that in the town of Pelham, Ontario, local officials have just stopped responding to journalists. 
They've just stopped sending. There's one news outlet in town, the Pelham Voice. And for several weeks, the town councillors, public officials just, just stopped sending press releases, stopped answering calls, stopped answering questions. And the Canadian Association of Journalists, to their credit, have taken up this case and said you cannot ignore local journalists uh, and is shaming town council. But I, I want to kind of just lend my voice to that uh, to that public shaming because we're going to see more of this as, as local journalistic outfits disappear and weaken you're going to see a direct correlation where elected officials are just going to start to say, well, maybe maybe I don't have to be accountable to these people or this local blogger. Uh, Maybe I can ignore this. And uh, we just need to constantly push back against that. And there's going to be more and more pressure, especially at at the local and municipal level, where so much of the journalism has just eroded to the point of, to the breaking point. And I, I don't think that there's much political, negative political consequences for, for that. And it's really concerning. Duly noted. Sandy, what have you for us? Well, I'm, I, you know, we're in BC, and so we're watching the unfolding of um, Kinder Morgan pipeline uh, is heating up, and there's a lot of controversy back and forth. And one of the things that the media is is it's starting to appear in the media amongst reporters who are effectively expressing their uh, opinion. There's this um, drumbeat starting that the environmental opposition for and, and First Nation opposition to the pipeline is being foreign funded. And there's there's getting to be this this whole uh, concern that somehow that's illegitimate, and that this is actually being expressed by a lot of a lot of people in the media and journalism as a means of discrediting the opposition. Now, one you know whichever way you come down on this pipeline, I am concerned about especially when media and journalists start to suggest that there's something illegitimate about an environmental group getting funding from a large, major international philanthropic foundation uh, to stop. And <laughs> the Kinder Morgan, is, it's, oh, it's, its parent company is an American, it's basically an American pipeline company, and, and it's going to be serving largely foreign-owned oil and gas companies and oil and gas interests to sell Canadian oil to foreign countries to get foreign money. But somehow, all of a sudden, uh, it's totally not on for the environmentalists to uh, avail themselves of globalization the way that industry has. So my duly noted is maybe we should be a little bit more skeptical about this. Duly noted. Finally, I just want to point out something really cool. Uh, reporter Zane Schwartz, who is uh, a post-media journalist who's been on a fellowship, spent his fellowship gathering six million records from every province and territory and has created something called Follow the Money, which is Canada's first central searchable database of political donations. You can just Google this, post-media, follow the money, and you could find out who has given money, what organizations have given money, and to whom. And and you can do that in reverse. This is an incredible resource that will fuel not just a greater public awareness of of who's paying for what, but it'll help journalists do their jobs. It's the kind of thing we need more of. Uh, So kudos to Zane Schwartz, and, and check it out. It's really cool. Follow the money. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody – 
half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. Our last topic today, Sandy, I want to update people on where this Khalistani in Canada story has gone since we last spoke about it. I will attempt a bit of a summary. The Globe and Mail revealed that Jagmeet Singh, in fact, has ties to Sikh separatism beyond what was previously known. Uh, Among them, he attended a rally in San Francisco in 2015 honoring Sikh separatist Jamail Singh Bindranwali. And this series of revelations, that wasn't the only one, linking Jagmeet Singh in various ways to this cause have finally resulted in Jagmeet Singh taking a more definitive stand on this than he was previously in, in, in his uh, infamous uh, interview with Terry Molesky when he was uh, first named leader of the NDP. And he has since uh, denounced Parmar. Uh, he accepts the findings that Parmar is the architect of the Air India bombing. He has said that these questions are fair. And this has led to another round of coverage, which is uh, where our focus should be, including a column in the Globe and Mail by Margaret Wente, the headline of which is The Strange Loyalty of Jagmeet Singh. Marty Patraquin, uh, writing in iPolitics, says that this, this calls into question Singh's own contention about his very identity, that it is based on peace between Hindus and Sikhs, that that is now called into question. And Marty describes Jagmeet Singh as, as a quote, a brown-skinned man in a turban and an impeccably tailored suit. Singh strikes a perfect balance between exoticism and familiarity. And Marty goes on to write that Jagmeet Singh should cop to his religious convictions. So that's happening, uh, and that is how Jagmeet Singh is being described uh, by certain members of the press. On the other side, to a much quieter degree from the fringes, we have the Georgia Strait, their, their editor, Charlie Smith, writing a piece, the headline of which was, let's expose mainstream media nonsense about NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Uh, Singh is as Canadian as anyone else, writes Smith. And he says, look, this is political. Both the conservative and liberal party have an interest in painting Singh as the other, a man to be feared because he's going to import foreign disputes onto Canadian soil and undermine our relations with India. And the mainstream media, uh, I think Smith uh, suggests, is being complicit 
in this political campaign. And, uh, you know, he doesn't want to attribute all of this to racism on the part of Canadian journalists. But he writes, many of these media people cannot be simply written off as racists. They don't carry hatred in their hearts. They're just ignorant and lacking in curiosity. Sandy, you've written about this too. Where do you fall on this? Because I, I can see both sides to this. Well, I think that, first of all, the degree to which this is a major inflammation is is really unfortunate because I think what it plays to is uh, public fears, fear of terrorism. I think that's probably the number one the thing that the average Canadian who, you know, gets just slivers of news and information... And uh, I worry about the impact. Uh, you know, I always look at these things from the perspective, okay, when parents are reading and getting just a little bit of information, what are their kids doing to other kids in the schoolyard? You know, are kids going to be being bullied because they are wearing Sikh or Muslim headgear or something like that? That's kind of a little bit of my litmus test. And I feel like the inflammation here has been not well informed. And I think that there has been a lot of driving of fear. Here's the number one thing that Canadians need to know, which is that the Sikh civil conflict that happened in Punjab, and there was a huge conflagration there in the early 80s to the early 90s, and it did take lives. There was terrorism, and there was a lot of violence, Sikhs would say, and the historical record seems to um, un underscore this, that it was violence against Sikhs that was the main driver of this insurgency and of this violence. And the, and the violence peaked uh, in about 1991 at up to 5,000 deaths uh, w were recorded in that year on both sides of the conflict. That conflict ended as a major public safety concern by 1994. And that is widely uh -huh. accepted by, uh, by national security experts. You know, I, the piece that I did, I looked uh, not at what, you know, various people in this community or that community might have to say uh, about each other. Uh, I looked at, well, what did the experts say? And what is the, what's the official position? What's the consensus? The consensus is that this is over as a public safety issue. And there has been a conflation in the media, I would say generally, and generally by people outside the Sikh community, that anyone looking to be a separatist is also a terrorist. There's, there's no foundation mm -hmm. to that. that is, there's no foundation to that. But an awful lot of the movement is about social justice because there were terrible, terrible crimes committed against the Sikhs. And it, there was a reign of terror. Thousands and thousands of Sikhs were killed and slaughtered. And something that we don't talk about because when you hear people talk about what happened to their family, they will talk about an uncle that was killed or somebody in their family that was murdered, usually a man. I'm going to say this. There were thousands and thousands of rapes of women, gang rapes in some cases, in front of their children. So this is something that is very hard for a lot of people who are from this community, and they can't talk about that. But it's very hard for a lot of people from this community to then you know, hear from the media that they should just walk away from this, that they should not be concerned about it. 
you know, I, there are a lot, of, a, a lot of communities. We come, all of us, except for First Nations, from somewhere else. And the international environment, it's, it's now global. Look at Ukraine. Look at Chechnya and Russia. There, there are people who are concerned about what's going on in the home communities of their heritage. There's another aspect to this that I think that Canadians should understand, and also that Sikhs here, especially the millennials who seem to be very, very uh, engaged in this, is that there isn't any real possibility of Sikh or Khalistan independence. That's, the, that's just a non-starter. Sikhs comprise less than 2% of the Indian population, and they are, their dominant area is Punjab, which is located right on the Pakistan border. It will never, India will never permit independence there. So the concerns have to be about human rights, they have to be about democratic principles, and I would just finish off with one thing about this Bindranwali figure. If, as it's claimed, that the, the lionization of Bindranwali, who was killed during an Indian government attack on the holiest shrine in the Sikh religion, the Golden Temple of Amritsar, if he was really being lionized as a violent figure... Uh, which is what is stated, and he did have a violent background and was no angel. If that's his appeal, then where has the violence been? The people who are talking and talking about this issue, uh, the six are talking about justice. They're not talking about, well, let's go, let's go organize a terrorist attack. There hasn't been a terrorist attack of any significance in over 20 years. So I just, I just think all of this is, we're looking at the wrong, I think we're looking at this wrong, and we should be more curious about what's really going on inside the community, because this is not a community that's a terrorist community. This is not ISIS, and they're being treated as if they are. Wow. Uh, this is, you know, this runs deep, and that was, that was only a fraction of what you covered in your piece, which I think is so far the definitive explainer for this uh, in the National Observer, your piece about the context, which also goes into the current political climate in India and Modi's government and how Canada is being used as a pawn. People should read this. The big points to me are, like, you would not know from this, from this campaign about Singh, this line of inquiry and the editorials based on it, that there has not been violence in 20 years. You would not know the distinctions of uh, that violent separatism from, which isn't really a thing anymore, from people who still are sympathetic to the idea of Khalistani separatism and, and just how completely separate those things are, and that those things are separate from just being Sikh in general, uh, that gets lost in the shuffle and your concern for the community as a whole, who, for reasons you cite, may not feel comfortable talking about this. And you point out in your piece that there are people who are talking about this who are not heard as loudly as some of the mainstream journalists, veteran journalists who are kind of claiming the story because they were central to reporting on the Air India bombing. And, uh, you know, and I, I guess I'm, uh, I don't have any of them on this week either, but you, you point to Supriya Duvetti in uh, writing for Global News and uh, the UK writer Sunny Hundal, uh, who writes for iPolitics, and Jagdish Mann, who writes for Vancouver's Georgia Strait. So I think you, you make really, really good points that uh, are obscured by a lot of what's going on. And all of that being said, I don't even think it's like the other side of this. I think that both things can be true. 
I do think that if Jagmeet Singh wants to be prime minister, then uh, the cagey way that he has tried to kind of walk a line and not be completely forthcoming about everything is certainly fair game, as I've said from the start, for, for, for journalists to inquire about. And it's, it is a good thing that we now know where he stands. I think it's possible to be critical and skeptical about, about the lack of context provided and not put up any blockades or, or shame any journalists for asking questions, which I think uh, there's no reason not to ask them. They should be asked. I think that's absolutely true. That, you know, especially given the context of the Air India bombing. And let's make this absolutely clear. The Air India bombing was conducted by people in extremists in British Columbia. There's no question about that. Uh, to a certain extent, the degree to which people are being fuzzy about it, they're kind of like, you know, 9-11 truthers in some way. I think that a lot of them, they're not terrorist apologists. They mistakenly believe that there was a frame-up job. I don't believe that for a minute. I think it's been very, very clearly established. And Singh should have been crystal clear on that right from day one. And he should have also anticipated that that was going to be a question based on his previous political activity. So it's not like it's not like there's no justification at all for asking these questions and for being quite tough. My concern about how the questions were originally asked was that it would have been good for Canadians to see the setup, uh, to mm -hmm. see to see, well, what's the context of this question? Are you asking this man about this because he's brown or what's the, what's the reality? That we've learned a lot more um, in, in the days since, months since. You're referring to the lack of context in the Terry Malefsky interview? The original Terry Malefsky interview where, where the question was raised, but it seemed to, for me, come, come out of nowhere. And I think for most Canadians, it came out of nowhere for the simple reason that all politicians of all political parties go to these temples. Yeah. You know, Sandy, what, since you bring it up, uh, maybe you can join me down a rabbit hole here. And, and actually, we've had a wonderful episode of Shortcuts, and we could just stop here. And if people are not interested in my Twitter conflicts, they can, they can go ahead and turn this off right here. But Sandy, I respect the hell out of you. As a journalist, as a legal mind, as as a person with incredible context and and uh, an insight and good judgment, can I ask you for some life coach advice on on my troubles with Terry? Is, is that appropriate? Can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> What's your look? I would rather talk to Terry about this, but he won't come on the show. Okay, here here are some words that Terry has used uh, in his. I think at this point, hundreds of tweets towards me. Here are some words he's used to describe this podcast, my tweets, or me as a human being. Icky, nasty, creepy, slimy, slippery, smear artist, loony, pathetic, dumb, a dunce, sophomoric, spews terrorist propaganda glorifies a terrorist, idolizes a mass murderer, fraudulent, a liar. And I don't know what to do with this guy. I, I, I will try to summarize this as fairly as possible. Of course, it's problematic for me to be the one summarizing. I'd rather he was here to present his side of it. But I brought up the concern you brought up when that interview happened. I said, he's right to ask those questions, but there wasn't enough context given. And when I had that conversation on this show with Omar Mualam, 
Omar said, well, the context that was lacking was that it's hard for Jagmeet Singh to denounce Parmar. And I, I've asked some, some people in the Sikh community about this because Parmar's guilt is a contentious subject. He, he was tortured. Did he confess under torture? And it's just uh, for, for Singh to denounce him may have been may, may have cost him some support within the Sikh community. Omar was not taking a side on that. He was just saying this is why it might have been hard for Jagmeet Singh. That is, as I understand it, why Terry Molesky feels that I spew terrorist propaganda or my podcast spews terrorist propaganda that merely presenting Parmar uh, in that light and providing that context is essentially giving a glorification or, or excuses for him. And to me, the question is, and why he won't come on the show is because he's demanding an apology because he contends that I called him a racist. I hope this isn't too schoolmarmish. What I said is that in not providing that context and aggressively coming at Jagmeet Singh with that question again and again and again, it seems to me just a matter of fact that Terry looked like a racist to a lot of people. A lot of people thought it was racist to interrogate Jagmeet Singh that way. And I immediately said, I think there's probably more to this. So let's get some additional context. I believe that Terry Molesky's position is that there is no difference between saying you looked like a racist and it was reasonable for people to take you for a racist. There's no difference between doing that and saying, dude, you are a racist. I disagree with that. Uh, I think that those are two different statements with two different interpretations. I would be happy to have that debate with him. He doesn't want to have that debate. He's told me to get lost. And yet, while he's told me to leave him alone, he keeps peppering me with these uh, insults, which I can take the icky, nasty, creepy. But when he calls me a liar or fraudulent from his CBC Terry account to his 85 plus thousand followers, I don't know what to do anymore with this guy. Do you have any advice for me? Well... Since you asked, well, look at what what I just said about, you know, way at the beginning of this podcast where I talked about how this platform is designed to inflame this kind of division. You know, the one side is tossing the racism accusation and the other side is tossing the terrorism accusation. And it's just it's, it's like both sides are talking past each other and I'm not just talking I'm not just talking about you Jesse or just just about Terry but what's gone missing here is a belief in the good faith of the other mm -hmm. party obviously Terry Molesky and there are other journalists who I think fall into this camp feel that their integrity is being questioned and they're responding very, very vigorously. And at the same time, a lot of Sikhs are feeling that their good faith and integrity is being really questioned by the assumption that any time they, they speak out to defend the community's position that they're, that they're glorifying terrorism. I just think that the, the rhetoric here has gone way off and I'm not sure at this point whether anybody can back down. Uh, it was very interesting to see Sonny Hundle had, where's that National Post thing? He had... Um, I believe that was Sonny Hundle uh, who was engaging with uh, Maura Forrest of the National Post. And they actually personally engaged. And I think that they did that in a way that started with the assumption of good faith. You know, as emotions climb in all of these things, I, th I think this is one of those situations, I hope it is, that people will look back on as, as events kind of, other events kind of eclipse this story uh, and think, oh, uh, you know, I got really wound up there. I just don't think Twitter is the place for for these discussions once once people start throwing throwing bombs on either side. I think I I really wish 
And I wish so much that people would just please go back to the facts. Start with the facts. Because so much of this is being driven by fear. Some kind of fear underlies this fear of six fear that there's going to be some kind of terrorism. And I just, it makes me want to weep because that's like being afraid of the FLQ at this point. Well, you know, I I, am a believer, uh, perhaps Pollyanna-ish in this medium, uh, even above Twitter, just conversation. And, uh, you know, my offer stands. He won't do it until I apologize. You know, you could beat me with a hose until I apologize. And, you know, you could get the apology out of me. I can't apologize for calling him a racist because I didn't call him one. But I, I'll talk with him anywhere. On this show, on his show, in front of an audience, in private. Uh, the offer stands. If he keeps coming at me, I don't know what I can do. But uh, thank you for your yeah. thank you for your good counsel today, Sandy. <laughs> There's a mute button. <laughs> I could just mute Terry. I've never muted anybody. I've never blocked anybody. Um, but there is a mute button. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. Uh, you can email me about it, anybody, at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Sandy, where can people find you? On Twitter, at Garasino, and in the National Observer, where I'm a regular columnist. Uh, and you should go check her out there. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV fuv.ca and if you like what we do please support us on patreon hey i need you to pay close attention to this message it is not an ad this is about canada land and this is about you You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.